Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. The Archbishop of Canterbury ruffled some feathers recently when he delivered a sermon about the UK government's policy on refugees. He said, there are serious ethical questions about sending asylum seekers overseas and added the details of a politics and politician. The principle must stand the judgment of God and it cannot. Well, the Archbishop failed to stop the legislation. Similarly, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Archbishop Kirill, commented on the Russian invasion of Ukraine in this case, characterizing it as a defense of Orthodox Christian civilization. It was less nuanced and felt to many as if Moscow Patriarch was collaborating with the Kremlin. The Russian science establishment also has a record of doing something similar. Take Trofin Lyshenko, one of Joseph Stalin's favourite scientists. The crop geneticists' agricultural policies might have been disastrous, but Uncle Joe strongly advocated for the idea of collective farming. So Lyshenko went along with it. The Soviet Union was also supported by some scientists of a communist persuasion who sold their skills to spy for Soviet Russia. Here's Elizabeth Bruton from the London Science Museum speaking on the Naked Scientist show Codemaking and Breaking. The Portland spy ring was one of the most successful Soviet spy rings in Britain during the Cold War. It consisted of five people, but the two people we're particularly interested in were Helen and Peter Kroger, They were ostensibly a Canadian couple living in Ricelip in North London, that well-known centre for spying. Uh, He was an antiquarian bookseller, she was a housewife, but they were actually American communists spying on behalf of Soviet Russia. 
they were using powerful radio sets and micro dots, that is where you photograph a document or image and you shrink it down to the size of a full stop so you can send it in books and letters and so on. Um, and they were using those to send top secret naval documents back to Soviet Russia, particularly relating to Britain's nuclear submarine programme. When it comes to religion and belief, there's always been a tug of war over authority between God and Caesar, as Jesus put it. The theme of our podcast this week, with God on our side. I confess to sympathy with Abraham Lincoln's view. He said we shouldn't ask whether God was on our side, but rather, were we on God's side? Anyway, the relationship between religion and politics has always been in flux. With the wars of religion in the 16th to 18th centuries and a diminution of papal authority over kings and armies, things shifted. And they shifted again in the 19th century with the rise of the nation state. These developments are traced with great subtlety by Jocelyn Cesari, Professor of Politics and Religion at the University of Birmingham and also Professor at the Berkeley Centre for Religion, Peace and World Affairs. And she recently published a book called We, God's People. And I'm pleased to say that she's joining us for this podcast. So perhaps we will be able to claim that we have rendered under Cesari the things that are Cesari's. Sorry. <laughs> Joining Jocelyn is Chris Cooper Davis, honorary PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute, who's inching towards his doctorate on the emergence of the state of Iraq after the First World War. So, with God on our side, let's start at the sharp end, shall we? Bringing the Ukrainian war to an end. Jocelyn, President Zelensky has suggested that the Pope should get involved. Does this make any sense to you? You mentioned the war of religion. Actually, the end of the war of religion in Europe created the understanding on which we are still operating, that there is a separation between religion and politics, and that the role of religion is to take care, as you said, of the belief. But I want to remind people that religion is first and foremost not a belief. And it's important to say this because for most of the so-called members of the religious groups and communities around the world, and to some extent also in the West, religion is, is first a community. It's about belonging to a group. I do not know any religion that comes from an individual. <laughs> the whole message of a religion has to be carried by a group. And what I show in my book is that until the end of the war of religion, this group as a religion provide meaning, institution, resources to everything, including politics. Under the canopy of the church, you mentioned God and Caesar, that was certainly not part of the gospel that the Pope was using at the time. In the middle of the war of religion, a student at La Sorbonne wrote a thesis that said that the Pope is a lieutenant of Jesus on earth and that he rules over everything and especially kings. The Archbishop of Canterbury, to go back to your question, is not claiming because, of course, there have been centuries of continuous secularization. What he's saying is that as a religious authority, it is also my responsibility to say something about common issues for the common good. 
Okay, let me intervene at that point because we have in our dialogue partner, Chris, an understanding of the place of Iraq, the creation of a state, the role of religion. Now, Chris, what Jocelyn say, uh, particularly in terms of religion and, and community, if you like, to understand the role and that relationship between religious and politics? Does that make sense in the story of Iraq and the creation of Iraq? Just briefly going back to the Pope's intervention in the Ukraine war. It's interesting how, you know, as a community leader, the leaders of, of the Catholic Church and, you know, in the Iraqi case, I guess in the Shia Iraqi case, the most uh, senior um, scholars, the Marja'iya, are so in tune to their community's kind of public opinion. And to a certain extent, I guess Justin Welby, with his intervention about the refugee policy, I think they, their role is not so much to intervene in politics or to, to challenge political authority. It's to express commonly held sentiment among their believers. You know, everyone, or the vast majority of people in Europe, the vast majority of Catholics in the world probably repulsed by the war in Ukraine. And so, you know, the Pope made a statement. Similarly, during the massive protests in Iraq against um, corruption in, in 2019, Sistani uh, made a public pronouncement saying that, you know, things needed to change, which is very unusual for a Marjaya. I suppose Archbishop Kirill's intervention also epitomises and symbolises what you said, because in this case, he's speaking in support of his community and his understanding of the role of the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russianization, if I want to call it that, of parts of Ukraine. They're pretty similar, come from different positions, but actually what they're doing is pretty similar, speaking for their community. I would say that it's the position of the patriarch is more than the, the one of the archbishop because he's operating in a complete different environment. And actually, in the book, I didn't forecast, but I said the role of Russia as a holy Rus, Ruski Mir, with the support of the patriarch will be a determinant of foreign policy. I can say this, I could see that the book has been published before the war, because I have observed and studied the fact that Putin, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, has revived the understanding that orthodoxy is a central element of the national community. So the patriarchate is operating within a system that sees itself with a responsibility vis-à-vis -vis the state, vis-à-vis -vis the whole Russians. And there is a whole lot of discussion because theoretically, legally, Russia since 1997 is a secular state, which was never before, by the way, even under the communist, it was not a secular state. So theoretically, all religions have the same legal status. They do, but it, it appears that the, the patriarchate has a clear intention to recreate the privileged relationship that existed between the Tsar and the Russian Orthodox Church before the Soviet Revolution, and he has succeeded in doing that. But there isn't really a separation, is there, Jocelyn, between church and state in Russia, as we might identify in Western countries? It depends what you call separation. I don't think that there is a separation in England as well. Let's be clear. If we think separation with complete lack of relationship between the state and religious organization, only two countries fall in this category, the US and France. This doesn't mean that the other countries in Europe or elsewhere are not secular. It's the neutrality of the state that involves treating all religions the same way. And in this sense, you can say, indeed, England is a secular state, even if there is the Anglican Church 
and the queen is the head of the church, it doesn't mean that all religious group organizations do not have the right to exist and that uh, the law should treat them the same way. So in this sense, that is secular. The secular, uh, secular culture is not separation. Chris, what can we learn from the creation of Iraq? I think Iraq probably tells us slightly different things about the relationship between religion and politics. More to do with, I suppose, the, the influence of nation building and colonialism on uh, religious identity and sectarian identity, which is bringing in a different theme to what we've been talking about so far, which is to do with the institutional separation between church and state. One of the things to remember about Iraq is Iraq isn't actually that religiously diverse. In the media, you often get this impression that Iraq is kind of plagued by a multiplicity of different religions that could never possibly uh, get on. But I think it's about 90% Muslim. And obviously there's, there's important divisions between Shias and, and Sunnis and ethnic divisions between Kurds and Arabs. But certainly it wouldn't be any more religiously diverse than somewhere like the UK. But when you look at the, at the process of state formation following the fall of the Ottoman Empire and how it developed throughout the 1920s and 1930s and then into the post-colonial period, the meaning of these um, religious identities were transformed and politicised in ways that, that have obviously resulted of the instability that we see in the country today. And really, I think this comes down at its core to the, the fact that the country was never been allowed to develop uh, into a functioning democracy. We really want to understand, I guess, the politicisation of religious identities uh, leading to sectarian conflict. It's really a story of colonialism and authoritarianism. Colonial state looks to create fissures in society to make them easier to govern, which they did in Iraq. And then authoritarian regimes that come out of in the post-colonial era do very similarly. And that's a story, Jocelyn, that we hear elsewhere, isn't it? I would like to add a few more things on Iraq because I have looked at the formation of states across all Muslim-majority countries. And the key element is the end of the Ottoman Empire. Until the, the collapse of the empire, there is no nation. The nation is not automatic and given. What I show in the book is that people have to learn to be member of a national community. A nation are based on two principles that do not exist in any other modern communities, which is equality of membership and sovereignty of people. But to think that this mode of organizing the political power has not touched the religious communities, that's a mistake we have been making. And this I'm talking more to my colleagues in social science who completely ignore the influence of this new community building on the existence or, or modes of operating of the communities that were already there and that were all religious communities. Why, Jocelyn, has it been ignored, do you think, in other disciplines like sociology? Before we take a break, just help, help us there, because it seems so obvious, and I'm sure to listeners of Naked Reflections who hear me drone on about this, that the role of religion clearly has an impact in so many aspects of our lives. You don't necessarily have to be, quote, religious, unquote, to see that. But why are some of your colleagues so reluctant to um, take that seriously? It's interesting you are raising that, because actually the founders of sociology Emil Durkheim and uh, Max Weber, two of them looked at religion <laughs> and said clearly that religion is a central institution that creates social cohesion. 
But it has been lost in the process for two reasons. First, because society, especially in the West, have become more and more centered on religion as individual beliefs. So lots of the work on, for example, sociology of religion is about sampling, interviewing people. So we know a lot about the religiosity of people, but it doesn't mean that this information helps you understand the collective logic. Actually, what I'm saying is that they are disconnected. And I just want to finish on this example. Everybody has been saying Trump is really not a believer. Like we are saying now, Putin is obviously not a believer or pillar of church. Same thing for Trump. But it doesn't matter because the investment in Trump or Putin is not because of him, of his qualities. It's about making alliance with someone who can move forward the interest of the collective. And if we don't see that, we are not, that's what I keep saying, that's a key element that our secularized approach, looking only at individuals, doesn't allow us to understand. Well, let's take that point and have a short break because we're going to move into the question of America's choice of president. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Justin Cesari and Chris Cooper-Davis. Our subject, religion and politics with God on our side. Now, I don't think I was the only one to feel queasy when I saw footage of evangelical Christians laying hands on Donald Trump during the last presidential election campaign. Here's Professor Tony Badger speaking on the Naked Reflection show, America's Choice of President. The evangelical churches, in particular communities, is almost like the uh, head office of the local Republican Party. Evangelical Americans have always been willing to um, put their faith and passion on behalf of segregationist candidates and on behalf of anti-communist candidates and on behalf of economically conservative candidates. So let's return to that question, Jocelyn, just before the break, which is the role of religion in American politics. And the irony is, before we turn to Trump, and you mentioned this, that alongside France, this is the only country in the world where there is theoretically, a separation of church and state. But in practice, that's not the case, is it? Again, uh, if you look at the institutional level, uh, despite the push of the evangelical, it's still the case. And actually, it's even more so than a country like France, for example, where the state has mingled into organizing religious groups like representative body of Islam, which the American state would never do. And they don't understand that when they look at the French situation. So that's one level of secularization. The second level, again, that we are not looking into is the status of religion in society. And here we have two different trajectories. The French did the best, actually, but it's not a compliment. They, they were the most efficient in uh, eradicating, and I use the term specifically, all visibility and legitimacy of religion in social interactions. The ideal is that to be a citizen, you should not rely on religion to build this civic uh, culture and to be part of the political community. While you turn to the U.S., it has been the opposite. It's Tocqueville going to, from France, going to the U.S. and marveling how the congregations are part of building the lively uh, civic society. And actually in the U.S., to be a good citizen is to be a member of a congregation. 
So you see, if you look only at the institutional level, you miss this uh, very different position of religion as community again in, in different societies. And that's where in America you have reference to God all the time. It's, un it's unthinkable, some analysts would say, that openly atheist po uh, political actor could be elected president. Bringing it back to Iraq, and I know that your period is the early period, Chris, but I'm just thinking about the transfer of, of concepts, particularly from the West to Iraq. One of the criticisms, if you like, of the intervention by the West, particularly the US and the UK, was an attempt to bring democracy to the Middle East, to bring democracy to Iraq, and that failure. Is there something about bringing religion and Western concepts of religion to that part of the world, which is equally a failure, and that we're seeing the consequences and the sufferings today as a result of that? There's definitely something to be said about the way that colonialism affected Islamic law um, in the Middle East and in, in pretty much all uh, all colonies that had a, a huge effect on the ways the, these societies functioned. And a lot of it was to do with, I think, the, I guess we can say that the sort of the colonial gaze and the way that the, the colonial state conceived of law and, and how they thought it should function. But after the expansion of the British Empire there, British officials that saw the legal system, that was obviously a Sharia party-based legal system, and they tried to transplant it into a positive law legal system subsumed within the remit of the colonial state. So this involved a process of, of codification and professionalization and bureaucratization of the judiciary and basically took, I guess, this Sharia system, which was kind of rooted in the community, in the, all of the, like, the very diverse Muslim communities of the Indian subcontinent and replaced it with a homogenous Anglo-Mohammedan law, as it was called. This process of the British story is a kind of a, a streamlining and, a, and a bringing logic to, a, to an illogical system. But in fact, it's a, it's a transmutation and it's a, really a kind of distortion of, of what existed before. Distortion of a community-based socio-judicial system of law into a mechanism of, of state power. And this is really the, the story of colonialism across all of the world. I mean, you see the similar processes in, in say, Indonesia. <laughs> But it's also not necessarily a colonial process because in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, there were also efforts to, to codify um, Islamic law and bring Sharia into the purview of the nation state. So really, it's not, it's not necessarily just a colonial issue. It's also a, a story of, of modernity as well. Jocelyn, would you come in there? I'm particularly intrigued by that comment that Chris made about the distortion of what existed before. Does that describe the context of the subcontinent and, and India, Pakistan, Bangladesh? Pretty much every country outside the West that has to deal with becoming part of the international system. And, and this will, will take several centuries. So colonialism was part of it, but not only. Russia was never colonized. China was never colonized. And I show in the book the continuous discussion of the concept of nation, the concept of uh, confessionalization of religion, of uh, freedom that start to change and to be discussed in a way that echo the existence or meaning of these concepts in Europe. So what happened is indeed uh, to go back to Sharia. Sharia never meant law and especially not state law. Sharia means method. It was a way for the ulema to provide rulings to the local communities 
And these local communities, again, under the Ottoman Empire, are uh, diverse. The Qadi, the judge, doesn't judge only for the Muslims, for all kinds of issues related to social contract, economy, and so on. The, all the communities go to the Sharia court. This monopoly of the ulema uh, about providing rulings based on a knowledge that only themselves have And unlike what people think, the Sulema were completely independent from the central state in Istanbul. They had their own endowments. The process of selection and training was internal and no political power really intrude on that. With the beginning of the influence of nation as a modern community, you see emerging this idea that we need also to look at our own Islamic tradition to find responses to that, intensified it. Chris, is there a tendency in post-colonial studies to propose a sort of noble, savage notion of how religion and the state worked? I think it's not so much a noble, savage notion. I think there is certainly within work on the way that the Sharia system worked before the modern era and before the period of colonialism, there's perhaps a tendency, I think, to romanticize and idealize the autonomy of the system. This notion that's developed by The scholars like Wail Halaq, he argues that since the very early Islamic period, uh, Sharia has been truly community-based. Scholars coming together to, to solve the community's problems, and it's essentially never never come under any kind of state control or had anything to do with, with state authority, which I think ultimately a lot of post-colonial scholars consider to be detrimental well, to the social good. I think that this tendency, A, leads us to a kind of a historically inaccurate picture of the way law and society functioned in the pre-colonial period doesn't accurately reflect the role of the state because states have always existed and states have always had an interest in, in, in regulating religious and judicial life. And B, I think then that leads perhaps to this, an overly reductive interpretation of how the Sharia changed in the modern period. Uh, this notion that the modern state is completely alien to um, the Sharia system it isn't true. And if you see some of the legal reforms in, say, Egypt or the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, I think that we can take them, them seriously as efforts to reformulate a Sharia-based system into kind of an alternative modernity, um, which ultimately failed because of the influence of uh, European law, but was a, a genuine and, and well-thought-out project of reform. I'm going to have to impose myself on this conversation and draw it to a close. That's all for this week. Thanks to my guests, Jocelyn Cesari and Chris Cooper-Davis, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you might want to browse our archive of podcasts, which include dialogues about the idea of nationality and the origins of prejudice, peace, and much, much more. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more guests, but in the meantime, I'll leave you with Bob Dylan's conclusion to the song that gave us our title from his album, The Times They Are A-Changing. I can't do it for you. You'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk 
forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.